sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Uh, let's go ahead and get started with phone calls. I've got lots of things to talk about, but uh, most important thing is what you want to talk about. So, Tracy's up first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Happy Easter. And to you as well. Tracy, what's going on today? I have a quick question. On the pre- pressure-compensated uh, drip tubing, tubing? Yeah. The, yes, does it need to be in the dirt or on top of the dirt? It makes no difference whatsoever. Um, you can, you can use it either way. My experience is, and I guess it's probably four years now that I've had it in my garden, um, is that the tubing itself is totally unaffected by sunlight. Uh, the tubes I put out several years ago are just as good as they were back then. But the little connectors, the L's, the T's, the straight line connectors, mm-hmm. those things get brittle in the sun. So um, <laughs> I can tell you that, having broken a few of them before I figured out it's good to put a scoop of compost or mulch or something over those to protect them from the sunlight. But uh, I most of mine is on the surface of the ground because uh, uh, that way I, I use little just u-shaped uh, bent wire to hold it in place i can pull those out and i can just put the whole row to the side and go through with my push-pull hoe or whatever get things ready for the next crop and then just get on one end and gently lift it and slide it over back in place but if it's uh if it's in an area where you have permanent plantings and you want to put some mulch or something on top of it and disguise it that works equally well the one thing that i do recommend recommend is uh, at some point along the line do have a little clean out option uh, the way I do it I just put a T in there I put about an eight inch long piece of the drip tubing in and then you just fold it over you use that little thing that looks like a figure eight to totally close it off but I'll go in every three or four months when the system is running and just open up that for a few seconds. And whether you're on city water, whether you're on well water, you're going to be amazed at the crud that comes pouring out of it. So I would not recommend a totally closed loop where you've totally buried it because uh, I think it is a very good idea to flush it out every so often. So leave at least a little corner, leave a little spot of it exposed where you can open it just to blow out any debris that has come in with your water. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day. I'm sure you will because you usually do. (laughs) It's, uh, I hope I'll have as good a day as my uh, black lab puppy or she's puppy she's 12 years old but she's still a puppy at heart but uh, if we can just have as good a day as our dogs plan to have it'll be a good day for everybody. You're right about that. Thank you so much. You're welcome Tracy. Look forward to our next visit and I'll say good morning to David now. Good morning David. Good morning, Bob. Uh, just a beautiful morning out there. A couple of things, neither one of them garden-related, but it's topics you have talked about. Yesterday, uh, y'all discussing a uh, lady with poison ivy was having a problem right. uh, with, with it. We found, my wife's highly allergic to it. Uh-huh. We got put onto a product called Ivorest. Ivorest. Iver. Iver, okay. I-V-E-R-E-S-T. Okay. It knocked it out. Also great for uh, sugar bites. 
Very good. Do you know what's in it? Do you know what base it is? No, no, sir, I don't. I'm on the road now, so I couldn't look. Oh, no, I wouldn't want you to do that. But uh, (laughs) where is this something you get at a health store, pharmacy? Where where do you get Ivarest? Any pharmacy, ATB, any of them. Okay. They they carry it. Not hard to find. And it's uh, like a lotion you can put over the affected area or a salve? Yes, sir. It's in a tube. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing, and uh, I hope I never need that advice, but uh, you've shared with a lot of people that do, so uh, I do appreciate it, David. And the second topic was about three Sundays ago, you and Dr. Kirby were talking about uh, vertigo in dogs. Yes. I never could get through to you. Well, I've been a vertigo sufferer for 35 years, on and off. It's gotten so severe a couple of times, they put me in the hospital with it. Uh, three years, it's been constant, so has the tinnitus. Mm-hmm. I finally found an ENT in Houston that specialized in this disorder. Uh-huh. What it boiled down to, neither one of those items are actually in your ear. They're in your brain. Uh-huh. He put he put me on magnesium glutinate, 500 milligrams twice a day, and my vertigo is virtually gone. I'm not saying it's cured. It's it kept it under control. And the only time that I've had any variance from that is this oak pollen kind of set me off a little bit. But thank goodness that constant vertigo that I've suffered for three years is under control. You the know, it, not, that's another deal, though. That's, that does not come from your ear either. It's something to do with the brain function. They still don't have any idea how to stop it. Well, but, uh, it's it's been a godsend for me. It's and it's, it's natural. Yeah, it's totally debilitating. Uh, we one of our employees suffers. My friend, the sheriff in Kendall County, suffered when he was a highway patrolman, and I just um, I know even Doctor Kirby has had issues with uh, tinnitus, and so it helps with that as well as with the uh, uh, with the vertigo as well. And is this a liquid? Is this capsules, tablets? How do no, you take magnesium glutinate? Uh, it's uh, tablets, 500 milligrams. I take them twice a day. Uh, it can upset your digestive system uh, with some people. It did not bother me. He said if it did, just cut back to one a day and see what happened. But I think I could take it three times a day if I had to with no ill effects. But it, again, it's cheap and it's natural. And usually natural things do not work on me. But uh-huh. this, this has. Well, you've done your good day for, deed for this Easter Sunday, sharing those uh, things with us, and uh, I can't wait forward to. We can't uh, wait to talk to Doctor Kirby about this because uh, um, it's you know, and and there there are different degrees. The one that we've talked about recently is this uh, vestibular uh, syndrome that uh, that very definitely. Um, uh, originates in a in a certain part of the brain, but I will sh- look forward to sharing this with him. David, you get out and have an absolutely wonderful Easter Sunday. I sure appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. Be- and I do get a lot of information from both you and your callers. Well, your show. Hey, you be safe out on the road, and we'll talk again. Thank you so Thank much. You, sir, have a good day. You too. Bye. All right, Gail's up next. Good morning, Gail. Good morning. Good morning. I have a kaffir lily. Uh, that was given to me years ago, uh-huh. and I've got it in a 10-inch pot, and it's getting too big. It's in bloom right now. Oh, the blooms are gorgeous. Uh, do you have the orange form or the yellow form? The orange. Uh-huh. And it bloomed this past summer, and I thought that was it. 
but it started blooming two months ago, and new blooms keep coming up. I want to transplant it in a larger pot. Mm-hmm. And I don't don't know if I can transplant it while it's in bloom. If I should wait for the summer. Oh no! Transplant it. Transplant it uh, whenever it's convenient for you. Because now, if we were talking about dividing it, if we were talking about stressing in the plant and all, it would be a different story. But basically, you're going to pull it out of one container. You're going to put it in another. Any root damage you create is going to be minor. Uh, it's my experience that uh, these. Uh, plants bloom best if they are somewhat root bound um had an old friend who passed away recently dalton watson had a uh, one of the orange ones in a wash tub and i saw that plant at one point probably with 30 bloom spikes on it and uh, uh it, like you say it's just absolutely incredibly beautiful and um long as uh, long as you don't let them freeze as long as you give them adequate light but i i wouldn't hesitate at all to uh, just in effect you're going to slip it out of one pot and into another and right. that can be done 365 days a year will putting it in a bigger pot make another one come up you know cuz it ha- would have room to have uh, another kaffir plant come Ew. Up. Now, how many how many plants, how many, uh, you know, upright growths do you have out of the one you have now? Is it still just a single a single plant? It's still just a single plant. That's surprising yeah. because normally, yes, normally they will produce, you know, multiple uh, offshoots from the base. How much sun do you give yours? Um. It gets sun in the morning, and then as the sun goes over, it's shaded, so it okay. doesn't get a lot of hot sun. Well, it it obviously is happy if it's blooming that much, yes. but I think perhaps if there was a way to get it a little bit more sun, it might tend to branch more, to put on more offshoots and become fuller. Uh, I can tell you that putting it into a bigger pot will not hinder that process, whether it will actually encourage more little offsets to come up. We're just going to have to wait and see. But um, uh, if there is a way that you can do it without the threat of sunburn, try getting it a little more a little more light still, and I think you'll have uh, you'll have better luck with it branching and producing additional plants from the base. Okay, uh, a friend of mine saw in a magazine a bossa nova begonia. I've never heard of it, and I know there are hundreds of varieties, or maybe thousands of varieties. Right. Have you ever heard of this? I've not heard of it by that name. Um, but there are several different classes of begonia, as it were. Some of them are what we call tuberous-rooted begonias that grow from a bulb-like structure. They do not do well here in the heat of South Texas. On the other hand, we have uh, the fibrous-rooted begonias, which there must be 5 million of them growing in San Antonio. And then we have that whole group they call the angel-wing begonias. We have the ones that are grown for their big fancy leaves we call rex begonias. And, yeah, you are right. They're not only literally thousands of varieties. There, there are many actually different whole classes of begonias. I would suggest that you... Uh, uh, well, if you want to try growing the Rex begonias, do it in the cool season of the year. Maybe put them in a sphagnum moss hanging basket or something where the soil is cooled a bit. Uh, they're never going to look, look like they do in Bouchard Gardens or somewhere like that. But I 
think that the key to my being able to give you help on growing it is going to figure out which one of these classes of begonias uh, it exists in. And like I say, the only one that you're really going to have trouble growing here is going to be the tuberous-rooted begonias, but uh, um, there are an awful lot of them sold in the northern part of the country and advertised in these magazines, and there are an awful lot of Southerners that, that fall prey to sending them money and then are disappointed in the results. So dig a little deeper, see what you can find out about it, and you know I'd love to tell you about it if I can. Okay, well, thank you very much. You are certainly welcome. All right, it's going to be Jamie and Carol and Steve and Christy. Jamie's up first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob, and happy Easter. To you as well, Janie. Well, I've got a problem. I've got two rose bushes, and I guess I put them too close together. One bush, one uh, rose is blooming, and it's all bushy. The other one is look like it's not as bushy as that, but it's trying to grow, and it's giving me flowers. But I'd like to know if I can dig it out, that that rose bush and transplant it you can do that it would have been better to do it back when the weather was colder but so long as you don't allow the root system to dry out i've transplanted roses even in july and august very successfully but have the new hole dug do not let anything interrupt you when you dig that plant out it needs to go right back in the ground if the if the uh, root system on a rose dries out one time plants probably dead so as long as you can take it from the ground put it back in the ground fill the soil around it and water it if you can get all that done within the space of a very few minutes um again you can certainly do that and you will almost certainly be successful like i say it would have been a little better to do back in january or february but uh having done it you know even in the middle of the summer we seem to be having a longer cooler spring than we do many years so i would encourage you to do it as soon as you can janie Okay, I think I like to wait. I don't want to lose it. <laughs> well, so yeah, wait until about November or so. It really doesn't okay. hurt them to be crowded. Um, it just doesn't allow them to form their individual shape, doesn't allow them to show off, you know, as individual plants. But you're you're not going to have it. Uh, it. It doesn't matter being close to its friends. The only time that's an issue, if the plants are distinctly different sizes, if you have a little miniature rose being shaded out by a big full-size climber or whatever, that's an issue. But these two are just kind of, you know, fighting it out yeah. to see who's going to be the biggest and prettiest, and uh, that's not going to hurt them if you wait till yeah, fall to do your transplanting. Well, the one that I'm talking about, it, it's it's real nice. It's a nice size one, and the other one is not miniature, but they're small. Uh huh. Well, that's what I was worried. It's a beautiful. It's got a lot of leaves. It's it's like it's different than uh-huh. the other one. And so I said, oh, God. Well, that's why there's so many different classes of roses. If you have to, if you get to the point where you feel like one is really shading the other, do a little pruning because um, whether it's the one that stays or the one that gets moved, uh, they do need to continue to get good sunlight. So if you have to prune one to help out the other, that's not going to hurt a thing. But uh, in the meantime, oh, you okay. just uh, I'll do that. I'll, just, I'll trim it. I'll trim that butchy one so the other one can't get more fun okay i'll do that very good and you also have a very happy easter it's always good to hear your voice oh 
You too. Enjoy yourself today. Okay? We'll do it, Janie. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. <laughs> Goodbye. Carol's next. Good morning, Carol. Hi. Easter blessings. And to you as well. I wanted to ask you, when's the best time to trim some limbs off a loquat tree? Because, you know, they fall all over the patio and they sure. make a big mess. Well, I would tell you the best time is somewhere between about 7 in the morning and about 8 at night. <laughs> you can literally prune on your loquat virtually the entire year. The only time I will tell you not to prune is in September, October, because at that point you might be stimulating new growth, which would then not have time to harden off before we got some cold weather. Um, you're, you know, when you trim in the fall, you're going to sacrifice some blooms. When you trim in the spring, you're going to sacrifice some fruit, but a loquat is a vigorous plant that it will not harm, uh, to prune it. And you're not talking about cutting it, you know, back to a foot tall. You're just going to shape it up a bit and you can do that, uh, yesterday, today, tomorrow, or next week, whenever it's convenient for Carol to get out and do it. What's the difference in a limb and a branch? None. None. Nope. Okay. Another question I have, a lot of Arizona ash, they're over 50 years old and they're dying. And and what's the best, can we just cut it close to the ground or do you have to take out the roots? Or? Um, it, uh, you can, um, you know, if you want to be totally rid of it, you would get somebody that has one of these things that is called a stump grinder to come in and uh, grind out that stump rather than letting it slowly decay away. But it that is strictly up to you. Uh, if the tree, if you're going to have to replace the tree, you could, uh, you know, you could cut it off four feet off the ground and set a big pot on top of it. You could cut it off the ground six feet off the ground and grow a vine up it. Or, uh, like I say, you can cut it down close to ground level and let it rot away, which it will do over the next five to ten years. Or you can uh, get somebody that has one of these machines. They're, they're called a stump grinder, and it's a big, heavy thing that just sits right down on top of the stump and literally chews it up about six inches down into the ground. Uh, it just depends on how you want to handle it. It makes no difference at all. Ash trees are soft, wooded trees, so uh, that stump is going to rot out more quickly than it would, say, in an oak tree or something like that. But uh, um, you do whatever works for your landscape and your situation. Okay. Well, if you don't use a stump grinder, is there any way to kill the root so it doesn't mess up the plumbing? Well, the roots the roots aren't going to cause a problem, especially if you've taken down the top of the tree. One thing you can do is drill some holes, you know, get what they call a spade bit, uh, you drill a bunch of holes down into that stump and fill them with potassium nitrate, which is also sold under the name of stump remover, and this will cause that stump to rot away much more quickly. But um, Arizona ash is not real bad about re-sprouting from the ground level, and once you've taken away the leaves, you've taken away the nutrients that would enable the tree to grow a lot more roots. So um, it's it's not going to cause any significant problems. Now, uh, ash trees and other trees can sometimes do a little damage just physically bumping pipes around. They don't drill into pipes. People always say, oh, you know, it's, they've, they've drilled holes in my sewer line and I've got a big problem. The hole was already there. Trees don't have the ability to, you know, to create problems. But if you already had a small problem, they can certainly turn it into a big problem. But if you're going to cut the top, 
off of the tree. I, I don't think you have anything to worry about with any any pipes unless there is already a problem there. Is that potassium nitrate? Potassium nitrate uh, used to be sold all the time under the name of saltpeter. Uh, nowadays, uh, you can buy it actually in something called stump remover is the name. It's a, uh, uh, a white chemical powder, non-toxic, non-poisonous, and it converts the wood fiber to a very soft and spongy material called nitrocellulose. You either let it rot away naturally or after about six months after you've drilled these holes down in, you put a handful of charcoal briquettes on top of the stump and light, and it just smolders its way down to the ground, and it's totally gone. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the call, Carol. And Steve is up next. Good morning, Steve. Morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I've got a quick question. Uh, I have an area in my garden that for uh, quite a number of years I've alternated green beans and spinach. Okay. And, uh, I just finished uh, removing the spinach yesterday. And every year I typically use the uh, inoculant, mm-hmm. the legumes. Yeah. Uh, but this year I just haven't had time to get out and get any. And I Don't think worry about you it. You say one time that if they've been growing there for a while and if you've used it you don't need to do it again that's exactly right if you were to move to a different part of the garden for your any legume beans peas or anything else you would need to inoculate since you've been growing beans in this same area i don't think you benefit at all by uh continuing to add inoculant i think that's totally unnecessary unless you're gonna move your beans to a different part of the garden so just go for it i when i was by the nursery this morning i grabbed a package of bean seed myself that'll probably be one of my gardening chores this week so uh and i'm planting in the same place i always plant beans so i'm not planning on using inoculant this year okay good well i was a little hesitant but it sounds like i'll get out there after some coffee and and do it it's gonna be a pretty morning for it you have a nice easter okay thanks steve goodbye all right it's gonna be christy rosa bill and george and christy's up first good morning christy hey good morning good morning to you as well two questions so two years ago, I took my garden, uh, my lawn, organic, uh-huh. everything you said, and I have the most beautiful lot of clovers. I'm doing something wrong. No, you're doing things right. Clover is your friend. Uh, clover actually is telling you, hey, your soil is hard, and I'm working to make it softer. Clover will grow in soil that is so hard that almost nothing else will. Clover has little nodules on its roots that are filled with a bacteria that has the ability to take nitrogen from the air and turn it into fertilizer. So uh, clover is just sort of an indicator that it's it's working on building your soil. Set your mower down fairly low and just mow it off. Um, Your your turf grasses are really just starting to grow. Uh, There's no reason to kill the clover. It's going to die back as soon as the weather gets a little bit warmer anyway, and your mower is going to control it as much as you need to control it and uh, everybody's looking at clover and oxalis and other things that we might consider weeds this spring but it's simply the cool weather it's simply the fact that our basic turf grasses even though they've greened up have not really started growing so um, i don't think you have a problem i think you need some exercise with that mower and your yard's going to take care of itself okay i must have misunderstood something then because i keep the, the blades high 
so that the grass can come through the clover. So I'm going to do it again today. Drop well, it chop it down lower. As we get into the summer months, we very definitely want the blade higher because uh, it's actually more water conservative. But in early spring, when our our grass that we like is just starting out uh don't don't set it all the way down to ground level but set it down to where you remove the majority of the tops of the weeds and this will allow your basic grass to uh, come through much more quickly oh okay great second question second year in a row my peach tree came up beautiful it came up green put little peaches out there and now it's starting to yellow the leaves are yellowing and that is you're probably just in the same poor soil most of us are i would uh put some mulch out i would uh if it if the yellowing is really noticeable get an iron containing product whether it's green sand my favorite happens to be a ladybug product called magic sand which is uh yeah, yeah get out and use it how big in diameter is the trunk on your peach tree uh 11 inches Okay, you're probably going to want to put 20 pounds of uh, magic sand around it. Okay, super. I've got that. So do I just mix it into the soil or just lay it down? Just put it on the surface and water. Super. Thank you so much. Have a blessed day. You do the same, Christy. It's nice to talk to you. Thank you. Nice to talk to you, too. Bye-bye. Bye. Rosa's up next. Good morning, Rosa. Oh, good morning. Good morning. I was pulling weeds, and I have so many chiggers out in that grass it was horrible can i put down beneficial nematodes will that get rid of them no unfortunately the chiggers are up on the grass itself and the weeds themselves Um, you can spray some cedar oil out there and that will help run them off when i'm pulling weeds and i have a world-class crop of weeds myself i put on a little bit of uh, personal insect repellent i usually use cactus juice when i was a kid and we went down to my grandfather's property owned in east texas she always made us put sulfur in our socks and that certainly kept the chiggers away in retrospect we didn't have girlfriends but we didn't have chiggers either because it does kind of stink but uh um any of the you know cactus juice uh, or any of the good herbal repellents don't put anything on your skin that has deet in it but uh i always kind of slather up with that because the moisture, the coolness, the lush growth, this is the perfect time for chiggers. And if it's a big area, like say, you can get a little bit of cedar oil, uh, probably under the name of cedar side, and spray around, and that will greatly reduce your chiggers. But I still use a little bit of personal repellent in addition because I hate chiggers. Oh, me too. Okay, well, I was hoping that nematodes would help. But, no, it'll they'll oh, take care of fire ants, they'll take care of fleas, they'll take care of grub worms, but anything that's up on the plant, out of the soil, uh, they don't climb, so uh, I wish they would, but I sure can't promise you control there. Well, will they get on the dogs? Yes, they can. Uh, they are less of a problem on dogs with real thick hair, but uh, dogs with a little bit thinner coat, uh, yes, the chiggers can sure make them itch. Well, you know, I do not remember having so many last year. We didn't. We were much drier last spring. Yeah, must be the weather. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much. I always appreciate your show. Well, it's my pleasure. And if you're using one of these uh, repellents on yourself, you can put uh-huh. some of it on your hands and then rub, especially on your puppy dog's tummy where they don't have a lot of hair naturally. Uh, you uh-huh. can rub that um you know, on their skin. And, uh, of course, some dogs will immediately want to lick it off. But, uh, if you keep them distracted, in my case, with a tennis ball or a stick, uh, it'll stay there long enough to do some good and keep them from getting the trigger problems too. Oh, great. Well, thank you again. Have a great day. You do the same, Rosa. It's good to talk to you. (laughs) Goodbye. Thank you. Certainly. Bye. It's uh, Bill's turn next. Good morning, Bill. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning. Uh, I sent you, I think, a couple of weeks ago, a picture of a of live oak tree. Did they show it to you? Uh, they... I sent it to, you know... Uh, Shades of Green. Shades of Green. I don't uh, know if it's sa.com or something. Yeesh, um, I'd have to ask Wendy which uh, which they're using for that. No, I'm sorry to say they haven't shown me yet. I'll I'll sure Shame ask them to do them. it tomorrow morning, but it's been a little busy <laughs> in the nursery yeah, anyway. industry. But, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be sure that they uh, show it to me in the morning. Yeah, it kind of looks like, I guess what I'd call like a big cancer grew around the base, and it must be, oh, I'd say four foot in diameter, and then all of a sudden, you know, the the uh, tree just grew out of it, it looked like, but, you know. Uh, it, it was strange to me. I've never seen that. Well, there then, are oaks are susceptible to a number of galls, and there are different well, things that can be caused by bacteria, can be caused by insects. Uh, normally, the trees, normally the gall is stress related one way or another, and the trees outgrow it. Now, uh, those what they call tree ears, the shelf fungi that grow. That can be a sign of a more serious problem, but if the tree has, you know, outgrown it and is making good new growth, putting out good new leaves at this point, I doubt if it's a serious issue, but uh, I'll, I'll sure make sure somebody gets that photograph to me and... Uh, and I'll take a closer look at it, and we'll we'll, we'll talk about I it again. Know this tree, it's a lot older, but you know it's been that way for the twenty three years we've been here. It's not mm-hmm. on my property; it's on my neighbor's property. Okay, but so I know it's not under stress or anything. And you know, if you covered up a tree with dirt like that, it would be dead in whatever three or four years. Right. You know, well, way, it's at least four foot off the ground. Yeah. But it, anyways, uh, my, that's okay. My next question is. Uh, I bought a gallon of uh, has to grow lawn. Yes, and I thought about putting it in my continental sprayer, and I think it's probably one ounce per gallon. So, and doing it in my field because uh, you know, uh, the it's not growing as good. Of course, I haven't had all this great rain. You know, I got a half an inch out of each one of these big. Storms yeah, so yeah, that's a little bit I, more than I've gotten. So, uh, yeah, the good news is they're predicting more for Wednesday and saying an inch, but I'll believe it when I see it. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it'll be fine on your field. You know, one ounce per gallon. If I remember right, that trans, yeah. uh, you know, uh, figures out to 64 gallons of water and, uh, a gallon of the has to grow. And, uh, uh, it'll be great on any grassy areas you you spray it on. Keep it off the vegetable garden. Keep it off of other things because it's just uh, it will cause some burn. It's a little too strong for <laughs> for things like tomato plants. I found out the hard way one time when I <laughs> accidentally picked up the wrong jug. But on your fields, okay. it'll be great. No, I was going to just do it in the field. But yeah. Did you say? And then if that's a 50-gallon tank that I could just put 50 gallons of water in there and then put the one gallon of the 
lawn? Well, I'd I'd actually put forty nine gallons in the one gallon of lawn. But uh, well, in well, truth, I, what I would do is fill the tank half full, add the fertilizer, and then fill it the other half, so you get a good natural agitation and mixing. But yeah, yeah. I think a gallon to that fifty gallon uh, spray tank would be uh, ideal. Okay. All right, Bob. You have a good one. You Appreciate do the same, it. Bill. It's always good to Take talk care. to you. Thank you, sir. Be sure and try to see that picture. I will, like say, I'll do it first thing in the morning. All right, buddy. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. All right. Back to gardening and straight back to the phone lines. Let's see here. It's going to be George first and then Darla, Linda, and Carolyn. Good morning, George. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Um, I'm new to gardening. I'll, I'll admit that. And I keep hearing this term compost right and uh i'm wondering is there a recipe for creating a compost is there a commercial product that is compost just what exactly does that term mean well great question uh anything that was once alive will gradually decompose in the early stages of decomposition it takes uh, gases from the air uh the things that that help things decompose are bacteria and fungi and during that early phase of decomposition this is when you take uh, leaves when you take twigs when you take vegetable matter when you take animal matter uh, it still looks like leaves twigs sticks things like that the more it the further it becomes broken down the more it begins to look like just in effect a rich brown soil material and you can of course make composted home uh, easily there are books written on the subject most of us could never make enough to really benefit our poor texas soils as we would like so um there are commercially available compost products now I like the ones that are based either strictly on plant material material or manures. I do not like, there are companies which offer what they call biosolids compost, and that's basically, you know, sewage sludge. And it's not that I object to the fact that it's human waste, but our sewer stream, our, our wastewater stream today is so filled with pharmaceuticals with drugs with chemicals that it's just not anything i'm going to put on my yard but uh, good well broken down organic compost will benefit your soils in so many different ways Uh, compost brings with it a lot of carbon materials it brings a lot of natural um, sort of fluff sort of body to help loosen the soil but the most important thing it brings uh, is just a tremendous array of microbial life, both bacterial and fungal. Uh, the cheaper composts are going to be what I call single-source composts. They're made from basically one thing. You'll find mushroom compost. You'll find, uh, oh, like cow manure compost. You may find uh, soy uh, compost. You may find cotton burr compost. And these are all okay products. But the compost that I feel does the most for your garden, for your soil, for your lawn, is what I would call a multi-source product where they've used a lot of different feedstocks because uh, there's a different group of bacteria to break down just about everything out there. So these blended composts that are partly bacterially produced, partly fungally produced, uh, they're going to be the most expensive, but they're going to be the most beneficial. Now, how do you use it? If you've got really hard soil and you want it softer, 
immediately. You can actually till it in or blend it in. Uh, if you just simply put it on the surface of the ground, anywhere from an inch to three or four inches thick, uh, the humates, the humic acids, the things that are filtered or leached down into the soil, immediately go to work loosening the soil. If you want to have the most weed-free grass you've ever had, you spread a thin layer, like a quarter of an inch to a half an inch, over your grass during the cooler seasons. You don't want to do this in the hottest part of the summer, but uh, at least on living plants. But compost is, you know, it, it's basically just partially but but fairly completely decayed organic material and the different kinds of compost will be you know based on what kind of material decayed to produce it so um that's a very general overview does that give you some feeling for what it is yeah i see some products and i and i believe that a couple of them are something that you mentioned one i they have is a cow manure, yep. and uh, and another one was this uh, mushroom right. uh, product, and uh, I wasn't sure if those were complete enough to be considered as a worthwhile product to use or not. Well, and, it's uh, it's kind of like you know, do you want to have hamburger or do you want to have prime rib for supper? Uh, <laughs> the the composted cow manure products are very inexpensive, a couple of dollars a bag, and they bring you know a good <laughs> a good soy burger to you, so to speak. If you get one of the what I would kind of call top shelf compost, that's a, a brand name as well as. Uh, um, but if you buy any of the, what I, I guess a better name would be premium compost, which are these blended materials that there's been a lot more effort uh, put into producing, many times they add additional microbes and things to them, then, you know, you may pay 8 to $12 a bag for those, and that's sort of your prime rib compost. So it really depends on what your needs are. If you only need a small amount of compost, and in my vegetable garden, uh, I use compost two ways. When I'm going to plant individual plants, I'll put a little mound of fertilizer, then I'll put a mound of compost on top of it, uh, moisten it a few times, and then plant directly into that area. If I'm going to plant a mound, let's say, of squash or something like that, I'll be, you know, create a bigger area. If I'm going to do a row where, say, I'm going to plant bush beans or maybe plant a row of black-eyed peas or something like that, then I'm going to put a just a line of fertilizer down, just a line of compost compost on top of it and if you could do this a few weeks in advance you'll be amazed how soft your soil is when you get around to planting if you do it the same day that you plant it's still going to be of great benefit to your garden now one other quick question uh, i just bought a, a hose end sprayer mm -hmm. and it has a, a calibration uh on it that you can adjust to i guess uh i'm, I'm according to the instructions I think it's an ounce to a gallon. Okay. You know, it'll go. And the with hose-in sprayers, they most of them these days they're actually adjustable, and you can set them for any from anything to a teaspoon per gallon up to several ounces. Uh, I think most of the ones I see about four ounces per gallon is max. Although some of them may do eight ounces, and. If you know how to use them, uh, they can be a great time saver because any liquid, and, and they're really usable only either things for things that are liquid or else dissolve readily, but any fairly, 
um, free-flowing liquid, you can simply put in that canister and then set the dial for the appropriate parts. You go out and spray, and it's a little din- venturi device that uh, mixes the water with the spray material and, you know, simply comes out as a spray stream. The one thing to keep in mind, and it's very basic arithmetic so anybody can do it, if you get a, let's say, a molasses that is so thick that it doesn't go through the sprayer well and you want to put out a tablespoon per gallon what you do is mix it 50 50 with water and put it on two tablespoons per gallon that's giving you the one tablespoon per gallon application if that's still not thin enough you could uh say mix three tables or three uh tablespoons of water with one table or three parts of water to one part molasses and then set it on four tablespoons per gallon you get the idea you're just you're thinning it down so that it will go through the sprayer but you're increasing the number of uh, or the amount of material that's mixed with the water at any one time, if that makes sense. But hose and sprayers are are a great um, uh, time saving device. Now there are a handful of things that we don't add water to, like the vinegar and orange oil mix. In those cases, we use usually a pump up sprayer that you put fully diluted material into. But for spraying molasses, for spraying liquid seaweed, for spraying uh, you know, uh, quite a range of things. Uh, those hose-in sprayers are are a big time saver. Okay, is there a particular like a liquid fertilizer that you recommend? A product, certain product. Well, here's <laughs> you're asking really good questions. Uh, um, if you are using a sprayer. Uh, you're going to basically be foliar feeding. You're not really putting out enough liquid fertilizer to benefit uh, the roots of the plant. And for that reason, I think, you know, spraying with seaweed, spraying with some supplements is a good idea. But I'm not a big fan of foliar fertilizers because in my experience, um, if you give the plants everything they need through their leaves, then they have no reason to develop a really thick root system. And years ago when we were commercially growing orchids and we were competing with uh, some overseas companies that did basically 100% foliar spraying and they, they foliar feeding, they grew absolutely gorgeous plants with absolutely crappy root systems our plants weren't quite as pretty but the people we sold to told us hey your plants grow better they bloom better they last longer they're much less maintenance so if i'm using a liquid fertilizer and yes i love uh, the medina liquids the espoma liquids i'm more likely going to be applying those with a watering can where i can put on enough to really water the roots so i i don't really like a uh, hose-in sprayer as a fertilizer now like to say you can you can add some supplements like liquid seaweed and if you occasionally you know want to put a good liquid fertilizer in there you can certainly do so and uh the two top brands that i really like one of them is espoma the other is medina medina makes two different liquid products one of them is a fish blend the other is uh, their has to grow plant uh, and and those are great things, but just do the majority of your fertilizing. If you're using a liquid, you do it as a drench rather than as a spray. But keep in mind, using liquid fertilizers, you'll have to use those much more often than if you're using a dry granular product, which is going to be slower released. I do both. I at the time I plant, I've put down quite a fair amount of granular fertilizer on the ground, and then after a month or so, I start doing fertilizing with a liquid product every couple of weeks.
Okay. Well, hey, thank you so much, Bob, and have a blessed evening.